Uh, Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. This is the word of the Lord. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, Tatiana. Um, Please uh, keep your Bibles in John chapter 6, verse 60 to 71. We're going to be there today. Um, This passage as we all know, we've been in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John for more than a month now. And we've seen in this chapter um, the, the aftermath of a miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. And not only that, um, these disciples who were fed by Jesus were so um, keen in pursuing Jesus that they followed him across the sea. But Jesus kept avoiding them. Jesus kept rebuking them such that in verses 22 all the way to verse 60, we saw this big debate. Um, Jesus was arguing that he is the bread of life. He's not here merely to feed people. Jesus was arguing that he truly is eternal life. He's not here as a mere a miracle worker. And not only that, Jesus was arguing. There's something wrong with my mic. Is there something wrong? Put it higher. Okay. Is that is that all right? Thank you, Andrew. All right. Um, sorry about that, friend. Can you hear me? All right, cool. So Jesus was rebuking them in such he argued that unless they were given to him by the Father, they would never believe. They would never believe. And of course, the climax of this, as I and Tazar mentioned throughout this series over and over, the climax of this debate was that these disciples argued that Jesus was arrogant. They grumbled against him. How can this man, who we know the parents of, claim to be the bread of life? grumbled against him and turned away from him. And as we're seeing in this text, they they, 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 they they fell away. They no longer followed Christ. They were offended by his message. They said, this is a hard saying. The Greek says, this scandalizes us. We can't accept this kind of teaching. How should we accept this kind of teaching? So these 5,000 people who were at first... Um, amazed by a miracle, at first eager to follow Christ, their motivations, their heart assumptions were revealed by this debate. And verse 60 to 71, where we're at this week, shows us in a reflection, an aftermath of this big debate that exposes the false disciples' hearts, the people that followed him but no longer did because they were offended by him. And as Jesus reflects on this, as Jesus reflects on why they're turning away from him, as the text reflects on what we are to do, how should we respond to this big debate, it centers in on one basic theme, and it's this, spiritual warfare. 
But behind this debate, behind this earthly debate, a verbal exchange from verses 22 to 59, there's something deeper going on. It's not merely a debate of words. It is not merely a disagreement on a theological or academic level. It is not merely a disagreement that caused some people to be angry and Jesus disappointed. It is not merely, in other words, an activity that took place on a purely human physical level with voices arguing with one another. What we're going to see, friends, as this passage reflects on the debate that just took place, that we've covered throughout the past few weeks, is that there is a deep cosmic spiritual war that is taking place. This deeper cosmic spiritual war is what accounts for the public debate that Jesus just had with these false disciples. And as we reflect on that, as we think about it, I hope we come away from this sermon, from this text, really reflecting upon our lives, thinking, what are the deeper heart motivations that are going on in our everyday lives and the conversations that we have with people? How we, we get a keener sense of the, 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 the depth of spiritual warfare and the subtlety of it in such a way where we can be on guard and we can cling on the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ who holds us fast through spiritual warfare. So we're at three points for today's sermon. First, um, what spiritual warfare is. The text is going to teach us what that is or, or the nature of spiritual warfare. Second, what brings out spiritual warfare? What is it that exposes it? What is it that forces it out so that it shows itself? And third, it tells us our only hope in the midst of and within spiritual warfare. With that being said, let us pray. Father, we come before your text sober-minded, Lord God, that um, for this past month we've been looking at this debate and we may be tempted to think, Lord God, that this is just an ordinary debate that took place in history that resulted in a disagreement. But Father, as Christ reflected on this, as the Gospel of John reflected on what just happened, we are reminded, Lord God, that spiritual warfare is like an atmosphere that surrounds us, that envelops us, that, 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 that is all over us, Father, and we would have no place else to go, Father, but to you who are God, whose powers over all things in this world, whose spirit is more powerful than any spirit of this world. So Father, help us understand this passage. Help us come away with a greater sense of our need for you. Help us come away with a greater sense of how you hold us fast, Father, in the midst of life's temptations, in the midst of the Satan's snares and toils, Father. You still cling to us and you hold us fast. Speak, O Lord, for this is your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw and we are reminded that the disciples have just, again, debated Christ. And in verse 60, they says, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And in verse 66, it is stated that after this discussion that they had, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They no longer followed Christ. And our first point today is the nature of spiritual warfare, what spiritual warfare is. And in Jesus, knowing what's taking place, knowing why these people are leaving him, he reflects on it. And in verse 61, it tells us that Jesus knew in himself, he had a deep self-consciousness about why people were following him, the motivations of people's hearts, and he was not taken by surprise by them leaving him. Of course, he felt a sense of sorrow, perhaps we can say, but he ha he, there was no regrets. 
There was no sense of uh, him being taken off by surprise. There was no sense of him being appalled or amazed. Instead, it simply says, as a kind of matter of fact, Jesus, knowing in himself, this is verse 61, that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense? And how does this text explain it? In verse 63, Jesus says this, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. The words I have to spoken to you are spirit and life. Why is Jesus not surprised? Why does Jesus look at the grumbling and why is he able to say, I know exactly what's going on? Jesus is able to say that because he knows this is, this is how the world is. Jesus is not surprised because from the very beginning, he knew what he set out to do. He knew the kind of world that he was getting into. And in this world, friends, he is saying there are really basically at bottom only two realms, two categories, the realm of the spirit and the realm of the flesh. There is no in-between. There's no neutrality. Why is Jesus no surprised? Of course we can't believe. We are of the flesh. Why am I not surprised that you walk away from this? Do you take offense of this? This is a basic truth. I am telling you the good news that I'm the bread of life. I'm telling you that I came from the Father. I I'm telling you that you cannot sustain yourself with finite food, and yet you do not believe. Why is Jesus not surprised? Because the way he saw the world was in basically two categories. There are those who are of the flesh, and then there's the spirit. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. We're often disappointed that people don't accept the gospel because we believe it's obvious to us or in some way that it's, 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 it's clear to us that this is true. But for Jesus, it's the opposite. He's more surprised when someone does believe in the gospel because our natural tendency, friends, is to reject. If we are of the flesh, that's our natural, again, instinct, right? If, uh, over and over again, we saw in this debate, it's been emphasized over the last few weeks, no one can come to the Father no one can come to the Son, sorry, unless the Father draws him. In verse 65, it says that again. No one can come to me unless the Father grants that power to them. We are so sinful, so in the flesh, so inward-looking, so fixated upon carrying on the passions of our own thinking, such that were it not for the Father, we would never even have turned to Jesus. And so Christ is not surprised. There are two basic categories. And these two things, friends, are at war. There is no friendship between them two. It's complete enmity between the things of the spirit and, and the things of the flesh. And there's a reason why, friends, in verse 70, right, as Jesus reflects on the one who's about to betray him, and by the way, Judas isn't the only one who betrays him. We know later on that the Jews that used to follow him, the Pharisees, the, the Gentiles, they all came together, right? Everyone came together in a plot to kill Jesus. But as Jesus reflected on Judas, he says in verse 7, I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. So Jesus does not merely look at his situation and say, I'm not surprised at this because there's only two categories in this world, the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. He also reflects on his, the betrayal of him, and he says, the one who betrays me is a devil. 
By the way, the Greek is uh, super ambiguous at this point. There is no article in the Greek. An article is a, an a or a the. Uh, an indefinite article is a. So if I say a girl or a, a man, that's an indefinite article. I'm not telling you which man or which, which woman. Um, it could be any man or any woman. That's why we use a. But if I say the man or the woman, it's a definite pointer. It's a definite article. So if I say the man, I'm telling you about a specific person, right? And the ESV here, which we're using, it says that Judas is, is, is a devil. It's an indefinite article, a devil. But you see, in the Greek, there is no a or the. I mean, you could literally translate this. It would be improper English. It would be Judas is devil. Diabolos is the Greek word. That's frightening. Just let that sink in for a second. That's, that's absolutely frightening. One commentator said, and this is uh, consistent throughout, some commentators argued that, that certain men could be so identified with the devil's works and so under the control of Satan that they are identified with Satan himself. They're identified with Satan himself. Let me, let me just push this a little bit further for us so that we can really understand the subtlety of spiritual warfare and the nature of spiritual warfare, all right? You know, I was watching um, the movie Annabelle Creation recently. Boy, was that a frustrating movie. I don't think I remember another movie where I closed my eyes for most of it. Uh, it was just absolutely frightening. And um, uh, the, the movie was one of those things where it's just absolutely relentless. Like, every scene there's going to be a jump scare, even in the middle of the day. You know, in most horror movies, when the sun comes up, you kind of feel a sense of relief. Ah, oh, they're finally giving us a break, you know. Um, maybe there'll be some, uh, somebody who's going to say a joke or something like that. And, and no, man, in the middle of the day, a scary nun showed up. And, and uh, I was just shocked, right? But in the movie Annabelle, it, uh, they say it's based on a true story. I really doubt it. But um, <laughs> in the movie Annabelle, um, there's this doll. And um, apparently, throughout the movie, um, they argued that the devil himself was in this doll. How did they pick, depict the devil? And it, again, it was very, very frightening. They depict the devil as, as this, this man in black with eyes red, right? With big claws, like, scouring at you, crawling through the walls, right? Saying things like, I want your soul. That is the opposite of subtlety. That is just a blatant devil with horns and, and, and claws and red eyes just at you and chasing you down the corridor, right? That's Annabelle. That's our normal image of, of, of Satan, isn't it? We don't really think about spiritual warfare today, don't we? Because we think, I've never seen the devil. I've never woken up in the middle. I hope not. <laughs> You know, we, we think, you know, I've never woken up in the middle of the night and saw this man with two, you know, red eyes looking at me saying, I want your soul, right? <laughs> Again, I hope not. <laughs> but, you see, when we take a look at Scripture, how does the Bible depict the devil, demonic activity, and Satan himself? You know, when Satan came to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, right, it merely said this. The serpent was the most crafty out of all the other animals. It's more crafty. 
And then when Satan came to Eve, was Eve freaked out? Did they run away? You know, the only times when people actually freak out is when God appears. Jesus shows up in the storm. What is the first thing he says? Don't be afraid. Disciples were freaked out. You know, uh, Isaiah in, in chapter 6, right? God shows up in the middle of the temple. What does he do? Woe is me. He falls to the ground, right? He's just absolutely terrified. The only times in Scripture people fall, to the, fall face down in complete terror is when God shows up. Every time Satan shows up, nobody's freaked out. You notice that? What was Judas saying? What was Judas, Judas doesn't even say anything in his text. He was just there. Maybe just chilling. Still eating leftover fish. <laughs> Who knows what he was doing? Judas was literally just sitting there, right? There was no, no blatant devil with, with, with red horns or whatever. And notice the subtlety of Satan from the very beginning. Right? And in Ephesians 6, it says that Satan is a schemer. Um, 6.11, it says that uh, Satan is a slanderer. Right? The word itself, diabolos, means literally accuser, tempter, liar, slanderer. These are the kind of things does. And notice in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent came to Adam and Eve, what did, they, what did he do? He quoted the words of God. Did God really say that if you eat of this tree, you shall die? Did God really say that? All he did was quote the words of God and put it a little bit into doubt. That's Genesis chapter 3. Fast forward to Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was in the wilderness. What does what Satan do? You're hungry, aren't you, Jesus? Turn these stones into bread. You need to feed yourself. You're hungry, right? That's a basic physical need. Aren't you the son of God? Don't you know that you're son of God? And by the way, right before Luke chapter 4, Jesus was baptized. And what happened in the baptism? The Spirit descended upon him, and, the Spirit, and God the Father says, You are my son of God. That right the next chapter, Satan tempts Jesus. Aren't you really the son of God? Doubting the words of God in the previous chapter. Incredibly subtle. And then in Luke chapter 4, same, same thing in the wilderness, Satan quotes scripture at Jesus. He quotes Psalm 69, takes a verse out of context, applies it to Christ, and says, if you fall from here, wouldn't the angels catch you? Satan could quote the Bible? Satan has good theology? Satan knows how to misapply the Bible? It's absolutely subtle, isn't it? Mark chapter 8, especially Mark chapter 8, friends. You can go turn, turn it later. And this is ironic and amazing to me that in Mark chapter 8, the focus it was once again on Peter. And here, Peter was the one that responded to Christ. Where else shall we go, right? Mark chapter 8, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Jesus says the Son of Man has to suffer, and in three days he'll rise again. And Peter took him aside in Mark 8 and says, and rebuked him. Far be it for you, Lord, to suffer. What does Jesus say? You're such a great disciple. You're so wise. You, you care for my well-being. No. What does Jesus say to Peter? You don't want me to suffer? 
get behind me, Satan. You notice the subtlety of that? Doesn't that sound good? Caring? Who wants to suffer? You are the Lord. Don't suffer. Satan takes the forms, in other words, of what? Subtle temptations and lies that make you doubt the word of God, make us doubt the word of God. Subtle things that, that, that make God's purposes look distasteful or not good for you, bad for you. Subtle things that make you think, I know better than the Lord. I don't need God for this. I can take things into my own hands. There's another place in Scripture, by the way, that puts together flesh and Satan in this way. This, so it's verse 6071, there's a reason why Jesus talks about the flesh and the devil, right? Turn, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And I hope you see the pervasiveness of spiritual warfare in this. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Notice the, the conjunction or the coupling of, of the flesh and Satan, the prince of the powers of this world. Look, this is us, O Christian, without the Spirit, without grace. Verse 2, uh, verse 1 to 3, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The Spirit that is now at work Notice, at work, presently. The spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, you want to talk about spiritual warfare? You don't need to go to some jungle. We don't need to be visited by some man with dark eyes and horns in the middle of the night. We want to know about spiritual warfare? Look inside and think about your own thoughts. Look inside, look around us, and think about the things that we have said to one another, the jokes we laughed about the subtle things that make us not read the Bible. Uh, I'm really tempted to push this further. You know what? I will. Uh, think about this, right? How many times have you thought about this? You've had a long week. You've had a long week. And maybe you come back on a Friday night, and you think to yourself, man, I've had such a long week. I'm lacking, I'm lacking happiness. I'm just not feeling it today. Go out. You deserve this. You need a break. You need a break. Treat yourself. Go out, do it. Or maybe you come back home, you had a long day at work and your wife bothers you or something like that. Or maybe she's struggling with something else or your, your husband, right? And you come home from a long day of work and you think, why can't you just put me first right now? I don't need this. I just can't do it, I just can't. Put, put me first. Or especially in the Chinese and Indonesian culture, friends, how many of us have parents who are not Christians? 
and then they forbid you to go to church or they plan an activity for you to go to instead of church, and then you say to yourself, well, doesn't the Bible say, honor your father and mother? Only to miss out the next three words, honor your father and mother in the Lord. How many times has the devil misquoted the scriptures back at you? Or how many times have we sinned and then you thought to yourself, well, aren't we saved by grace? That's nice. I get to do whatever I want today. How many times? And you notice, have you ever been afraid in those sort of situations? Are you more afraid about the man in the dark? Are you more afraid than the thoughts that occur in your own head? Think about this for a second. The Judas sitting right there, Jesus could say, one of you is the devil. And Judas didn't even know it yet, maybe. There was yet no plot. What was Judas' sin? Greed, money, love of money. How natural is that? How, how unspiritual, how normal is that temptation? Money. There was no Ouija boards. There were no incantations. There were no formulas of, uh, of a prayer for the demons to come. There was nothing there. It was a love of money. And how many times maybe, I could push it so further, right? You know your own head. We know our own hearts. We know the subtle things that goes on. You had a really long Saturday night. You don't need to go to church. You need some rest. Take a break. And what brings it out, friends? What brings it out? That's the nature of spiritual warfare, by the way. The spirit of the power of the air. Spiritual warfare is so pervasive, but it's like the air you breathe, the air we breathe. If we're not vigilant, if we're not vigilant, how could we sustain ourselves? But what brings it out? Look at verse 62. That's the nature of spiritual warfare, but look at verse 62. He says, do you take offense at this? In other words, you know, Jesus was being rhetorical at this point. You're offended by this already, right? In other words, my words of me being the bread of life, of me being sent by the Father, that brought all of this out from you already? Imagine this. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? In other words, you are shocked by what I've said to you, but what if you were to visually see me ascend to the heavens, ascend to my Father? What if you were to visually see a vindication of my words in a way that you can deny it visually, in the way that you can deny my words authoritatively right now. What if you were to see that right now? What brings out spiritual warfare? And this text is telling us today this. The main thing that brings out spiritual warfare, that causes it to be obvious, that causes it to really be visible, that causes it to be visceral even, is an encounter with the real God. It's an encounter with the real Jesus Christ. If we encounter the real Christ, if we see Him, if we hear Him, if we really hear Him and listen to what He really says, there will be no point at which you can say to yourself, this is nothing significant. I'm not bothered by what, what, what Christ has done or what He's saying. There is no way, in other words, you could be indifferent if you've encountered the real Lord. This is, again, consistent throughout the Gospels, right? all over the place, every time Jesus shows himself to be who he is, there's a split in the crowd. There are those who believe, who cling on the Lord the way Peter did, and there are those who disbelieve. 
there will be nobody in between who says, I don't know, it doesn't seem like any, anything, anything out, outstanding to me. You know, some of you maybe who are still exploring Christianity, some of us here in this room are still trying to decide what Christianity is. And maybe some of us are still thinking this way, right? Maybe Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was a great example. He's just someone to look up to, you know, like Gandhi or uh, Nelson Mandela or uh, name your hero, right? So maybe you want to open the Bible and just be inspired once in a while. And by the way, if, if that's how you're... If you've come away reading the Bible and all you feel is just, huh, that's nice and interesting. Uh, you know, I read that once in, in a book by Oprah Winfrey. You're not reading it well. We haven't encountered him well. In other words, if you're unaffected by the real Christ, if you're unaffected by the claims of Christ and you're unaffected by what he's saying, who he's shown himself out to be, then we haven't really thought about who he claims to be, who he is. And his claims demand a response. They demand a response in such a way that who you are is exposed when you hear him. Who you are is exposed when you hear him. There's no running away from it. There's no choice at that moment. There's a visceral reaction to who he is. There's some analogies for this, right? Maybe some of you had traumas when you were a child. You know, um, some things trigger that trauma, right? Um, there's a meme that says triggered and the guy gets angry or something. Don't think about that for a second, right? Think about our own personal traumas, right? I could think about a particular occasion where my parents had a huge argument huge argument in a particular hotel room in uh, Las Vegas. It was the Rio Hotel. And every time I passed by that hotel, when I visited there again, um, years later, decades later, I still remember the fight. And I would get a visceral reaction. I would just need to calm down a little bit or something like that. I, I would remember the event very vividly. So notice, at, because every time I passed that hotel, I would remember that event, and I would viscerally uh, recall to mind the traumatic moment. What does that do? What, 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 what do moments like that show us? It reveals something about my heart. That there was a hurt event that took place there, and I can't help but react. An encounter with the real Christ exposes where your heart is and who your Lord is. We can't help it but ask, who is this man? What should I do now? We can't help it. And if you haven't felt that, if we haven't felt that yet, I hope we feel it today because who is this person who claims that he is the eternal one so powerful that he can discern where the devil is at in our hearts? Who is this man? Where are you at? Have you realized who Christ is for you? Finally, friends, our third point. Our third point, our only hope in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is dark. It is absolutely uh, relentless. It is subtle. You might not even know it when it's happening. It is all around you. He's the accuser. He brings up your past sins to you. He's the one who tells you you're still a, a rebel. He's the one that tells, he's the one that makes you doubt that God will care for you. 
He's the one that makes us doubt that, that God loves you and God has truly redeemed you. Where do we go? How do we do this? How do we fight against the evil one, as the Lord's Prayer says? Well, look at the response of Peter, which is, I think, paradigmatic for us. There are three subpoints under this. Three subpoints under our third point, our only hope within spiritual uh, warfare. So Peter said in verse 68, right? Jesus asked the 12th, do you want to go as well? Go away as well. Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Three things we can point out from what he says here. First is this. Consider your alternatives. What does Peter say? To whom shall we go? It's a rhetorical question. Lord, where else? Are we going to go away like everybody else? But, but if we go away, where else can we go? Consider your alternatives. Where else could we go? Do we deny your existence? Do we go back to atheism? Is that where you want to go? Consider that alternative. Then how do you account for meaning? How do you account for the sense that we have done wrong? Where is your moral standard? How do we account for the fact that there is love and that, that, that self-sacrifice is a good in this world? How do we account for the fact that we feel that there's something more to this life? Is atheism the way to go? We're irreducible to a biological, physical being. Is that where we want to end up? Is traditional religion where we want to go? Just try your best and maybe God will love you. Would that give you comfort? Would that give you security? Would that give us a sense of, of joy of the fact that God really has truly shown us that He loves us? To whom shall we go? Consider your alternatives. In other words, Anytime doubt comes to your mind, anytime doubt comes to your mind that God loves you and has died for you and is for you in Christ Jesus, and you say, is this really true? Consider the alternatives. Well, if it isn't true, where else should I go? Which God should I turn to? Do I rely on myself for my good works? What can I ask to which my conscience? What can make me whole again? What can give me Solace. Consider alternatives. To whom shall we go? Second sub-point from Peter's words. Notice the plural pronouns. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know. In other words, what is Peter saying? Not only should you consider the alternatives, but allow yourself to be in a great community of disciples and believers who are walking with you, who are considering the alternatives with you, and who are clinging to the Lord Jesus with you. We cannot do this alone. Why is it so important to be a member of the local church? Why is it so important to have a good community? Why is it important, friends, to, to fill your mind with great conversations, with, with the words of Scripture, with friends who keep you accountable? Because we know in our own hearts, we are so prone to wonder, aren't we? so used to entertaining the doubts that come into our heads, so used to entertaining the temptations that come into our minds. What is Peter saying? We are in this together. To whom shall we go? We have come to believe. We can't do it alone. We, we can't come to believe this alone. We can't come to know this alone. So consider the alternatives. Have a great group of Christian friends, a local church, to be with you, 
to walk through this with you. Without that, we won't even desire the Lord anymore. But thirdly, our only hope. Not only should you, oh, two, those are two practical strategies. Consider the alternatives in your head, have a great community of friends, but thirdly, our only hope. I could end this by saying, be like Peter. Consider the alternatives like Peter. Be in a good community of friends like Peter. But what, what happened to Peter? We don't know whether or not this happened right before Mark chapter 8's uh, event took place where Peter rebuked Jesus and told him not to suffer. And Jesus called him Satan, right? Notice at the end of this book, Peter will deny Christ. His bold confidence here shrinks back into cowardice later. He will fall, and not merely once, but three times. And in his guilt, Christ came to him in the book of John, the last chapter, and Christ says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Christ says again, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And the third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Peter broke down at that point. He's, he couldn't take it anymore. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Who pursued Peter when he fell to the temptation to protect himself rather than acknowledge his Lord? Christ Jesus himself who holds us fast. He is the one with the words of God. How did Christ battle the temptations of the devil in Luke chapter 4? He quoted the words of God back at him. How does Christ keep you fast? He is the one that pursues you. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 31. We're going to close with this. Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 22, sorry. Luke 22, verse 31. And it says about Peter himself. Right before Peter's denial, Jesus foretells it, right? And satanic warfare, spiritual warfare, shows up again in this passage ever so clearly. Look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 31. Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And notice... How did Satan demand him? Later on, we're going to see by causing him to deny Christ. How normal, how un unsupernatural, how natural does that look like, right? Mere words, but that's spiritual warfare. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But notice 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again. Strengthen your brothers. What's your only hope in spiritual warfare? Do you have a Christ that prays for you? Do you feel the Lord Jesus Christ redeeming you, pursuing you time and time again, no matter time, how many times we've fallen, Christ asks us again and again, are you still with me? And do you have him interceding for you in the heavens? praying for you, interceding for you, protecting you from Satan. And notice he's, what he says here. I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. What's the result of that prayer? When you have turned again. 
not if you've turned against. Jesus doesn't pray for you hoping that his prayers will be answered. Jesus' prayers will always be answered. And if he has prayed for us, no matter how many times we have fallen, when you have been strengthened, when you have turned again, once, once again, you have seen your sin, Christ will hold you fast. He will keep you coming back. No temptation can cause you to fall utterly. He is faithful to keep you and once again to hold you fast. Let us pray. Father, we realize, Lord God, that the gospel is not merely that sins have been forgiven, not merely that our lives will be transformed, but also that our faiths will be sustained. The gospel, in other words, is not merely about a past event that we are forgiven. The gospel is not merely about a present reality that we're being forgiven and being transformed. But the gospel is also a future promise. Because you, Lord Jesus, have prayed for us, we will be held fast until the very end. Not if we have turned, but because of your prayer, we will have turned. We pray that this is our only hope. Cause us to cling to you. Cause us to consider the alternatives. Cause us, Father, to be in a great body, a body of believers who cling to our head, our one and only Lord, Savior, who died for us, who gave his life for us. Jesus, in his precious blood. Amen.